Section 5 of Mark Twain's Autobiography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. New York, February 1, 1906. Tomorrow will be the 36th anniversary of our marriage. My wife passed from this life one year and eight months ago in Florence, Italy, after an unbroken illness of twenty-two months' duration. I saw her first in the form of an ivory miniature in her brother Charlie's stateroom in the steamer Quaker City, in the Bay of Smyrna, in the summer of 1867, when she was in her twenty-second year. I saw her in the flesh for the first time in New York the following December. She was slender and beautiful and girlish, and she was both girl and woman. She remained both girl and woman to the last day of her life. Under a grave and gentle exterior burned inextinguishable fires of sympathy, energy, devotion, enthusiasm, and absolutely limitless affection. She was always frail in body, and she lived upon her spirit, whose hopefulness and courage were indestructible. Perfect truth, perfect honesty, perfect candor were qualities of her character, which were born with her. Her judgments of people and things were sure and accurate. Her intuitions almost never deceived her. In her judgments of the characters and acts of both friends and strangers there was always room for charity, and this charity never failed. I have compared and contrasted her with hundreds of persons, and my conviction remains that hers was the most perfect character I have ever met, and I may add that she was the most winningly dignified person I have ever known. Her character and disposition were of the sort that not only invite worship, but command it. No servant ever left her service who deserved to remain in it, and as she could choose with a glance of her eye, the servants she selected did in almost all cases deserve to remain, and they did remain. She was always cheerful, and she was always able to communicate her cheerfulness to others. During the nine years that we spent in poverty and debt, she was always able to reason me out of my despairs and find a bright side to the clouds and make me see it. In all that time I never knew her to utter a word of regret concerning our altered circumstances, nor did I ever know her children to do the like. For she had taught them, and they drew their fortitude from her. The love which she bestowed upon those whom she loved took the form of worship, and in that form it was returned returned by relatives, friends, and the servants of her household. 
It was a strange combination which wrought into one individual, so to speak, by marriage, her disposition and character, and mine. She poured out her prodigal affections in kisses and caresses, and in a vocabulary of endearments whose profusion was always an astonishment to me. I was born reserved as to endearments of speech and caresses, and hers broke upon me as the summer waves break upon Gibraltar. I was reared in that atmosphere of reserve. As I have already said, I never knew a member of my father's family to kiss another member of it except once, and that at a deathbed. And our village was not a kissing community. The kissing and caressing ended with courtship, along with the deadly piano-playing of that day. She had the heart-free laugh of a girl. It came seldom, but when it broke upon the ear it was as inspiring as music. I heard it for the last time when she had been occupying her sickbed for more than a year, and I made a written note of it at the time, a note not to be repeated. Tomorrow will be the thirty-sixth anniversary. We were married in her father's house in Elmira, New York, and went next day by special train to Buffalo, along with the whole Langdon family, and with the Beechers and the Twitchells who had solemnized the marriage. We were to live in Buffalo, where I was to be one of the editors of the Buffalo Express, and a part owner of the paper. I knew nothing about Buffalo, but I had made my household arrangements there through a friend by letter. I had instructed him to find a boarding-house of as respectable a character as my light salary as editor would command. We were received at about nine o'clock at the station in Buffalo, and were put into several sleighs and driven all over America, as it seemed to me, for apparently we turned all the corners in the town and followed all the streets there were, I scolding freely and characterizing that friend of mine in very uncomplimentary ways for securing a boarding-house that apparently had no definite locality. But there was a conspiracy and my bride knew of it, but I was in ignorance. Her father, Jervis Langdon, had bought and furnished a new house for us in the fashionable street Delaware Avenue, and had laid in a cook and housemaids, and a brisk and electric young coachman, an Irishman, Patrick McAleer. And we were being driven all over that city in order that one sleighful of these people could have time to go to the house and see that the gas was lighted all over it, and a hot supper prepared for the crowd. We arrived at last, and when I entered that fairy place my indignation reached high watermark, and without any reserve I delivered my opinion to that friend of mine for being so stupid as to put us 
into a boarding-house whose terms would be far out of my reach. Then Mr. Langdon brought forward a very pretty box, and opened it, and took from it a deed of the house. So the comedy ended very pleasantly, and we sat down to supper. The company departed about midnight, and left us alone in our new quarters. Then Ellen, the cook, came in to get orders for the morning's marketing, and neither of us knew whether beefsteak was sold by the barrel or by the yard. We exposed our ignorance, and Ellen was full of Irish delight over it. Patrick McAleer, that brisk young Irishman, came in to get his orders for next day, and that was our first glimpse of him. Thirty-six years have gone by, and this letter from Twitchell comes this morning from Hartford. Hartford, January 31st. Dear Mark, I am sorry to say that the news about Patrick is very bad. I saw him Monday. He looked pretty well and was in cheerful spirits. He told me that he was fast recovering from an operation performed on him last week Wednesday, and would soon be out again. But a nurse who followed me from the room when I left told me that the poor fellow was deceived. The operation had simply disclosed the fact that nothing could be done for him. Yesterday I asked the surgeon, Johnson living opposite us, if that were so, he said, yes, that the trouble was cancer of the liver, and that there was no help for it in surgery. The case was quite hopeless. The end was not many weeks off. A pitiful case, indeed. Poor Patrick, his face brightened when he saw me. He told me the first thing that he had just heard from Jean. His wife and son were with him. Whether they suspect the truth I don't know. I doubt if the wife does, but the son looked very sober. Maybe he only has been told. Yours, F. Joe. Jean had kept watch of Patrick's case by correspondence with Patrick's daughter, Nancy, and so we already knew that it was hopeless. In fact, the end seems to be nearer than Twitchell suspects. Last night I sent Twitchell word that I knew Patrick had only a day or two to live, and he must not forget to provide a memorial wreath and pin a card to it with my name and Clara's and Jean's signed to it, worded in loving remembrance of Patrick McAleer, faithful and valued friend of our family for thirty-six years. I wanted to say that he had served us thirty-six years, but some people would not have understood that. He served us constantly for twenty-one years. Then came that break when we spent nine or ten years in Europe. But if Patrick himself could see his funeral wreath, then I should certainly say in so many words that he served us thirty-six years. For last summer, 
when we were located in new hampshire hills at dublin we had patrick with us jean had gone to hartford the first of may and secured his services for the summer necessarily a part of our household was katie leary who has been on our roster for twenty-six years and one day jean overheard katie and patrick disputing about this length of service katie said she had served the family longer than patrick had patrick said it was nothing of the kind that he had already served the family ten years when katie came and that he now served it thirty-six years he was just as brisk there in the new hampshire hills as he was thirty-six years ago he was sixty-four years old but was just as slender and trim and handsome and just as alert and springy on his feet as he was in those long-vanished days of his youth he was the most perfect man in his office that i have ever known for this reason that he never neglected any detail howsoever slight of his duties and there was never any occasion to give him an order about anything he conducted his affairs without anybody's help there was always plenty of feed for the horses the horses were always shod when they needed to be shod the carriages and sleighs were always attended to he kept everything in perfect order it was a great satisfaction to have such a man around i was not capable of telling anybody what to do about anything he was my particular servant and i didn't need to tell him anything at all he was just the same in the new hampshire hills i never gave him an order while he was there the whole five months and there was never anything lacking that belonged in his jurisdiction when we had been married a year or two patrick took a wife and they lived in a house which we built and added to the stable they reared eight children they lost one two or three years ago a thriving young man assistant editor of a hartford daily paper i think the children were all educated in the public schools and in the high school they are all men and women now of course our first child langdon clemens was born the seventh of november eighteen seventy and lived twenty-two months susie was born the nineteenth of march eighteen seventy two and passed from life in the hartford home the eighteenth of august eighteen ninety six with her when the end came were jean and katie leary and john and ellen the gardener and his wife clara and her mother and i arrived in england from around the world on the thirty-first of july and took a house in guildford a week later when susie katie and jean should have been arriving from america we got a letter instead end of section five new york february first nineteen o six